We are in the book of Colossians chapter 1, and uh, today we are entering into a very great passage in verse 21 through 23. As I was meditating on this passage and I was preparing my message, um, I was doing some research with some different things, and I I remember the, the movie 50 First Dates. Anybody ever seen that movie? It's got Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler in it. If you remember the, the, the concept of the movie, it's, it's a little bit like this. Uh, she had suffered a car, um, uh, been in a car accident and suffered a head injury. And that it's, it caused her that, uh, to, every morning when she woke up, she thinks it's the year that the car the day that the car accident happened. And it causes her brain literally to reset itself. And she forgets all of the memories that she had built after the car accident. Now, the, the surprising thing about it is it's actually uh, based on a, a true story about a, a woman named Michelle Philpott. I think that's her name. Uh, Philpott's of England, and she'd suffered a head injury because of a motorcycle accident in 1985. And then five years later, in 1990, she got into another car accident. And, or, or she got into a car accident, excuse me. She'd re-injured her head, and the injuries did enough cumulative damage to her brain that she eventually started having seizures and was diagnosed with epilepsy. And by... 1990, um, and for the past 20 years, she had all of her memories wiped clean when she goes to sleep. When she wakes up, she believes that it's still the year 1994. And, and even though she's in a relationship with her husband long before she suffered this amnesia, they did not actually get married until 1997. As a result, her husband, every day when she wakes up, has to show them wedding pictures. Now think about that. Waking up and forgetting who you are every single day. How crazy is that? It's just nuts. But you know, I think many of us do that who are Christians, that we made a commitment to Christ at one point in time, that God touched our hearts, that we surrendered to him, we received him as the Lord, we felt his presence in our lives, we experienced some victories, and then we go through the day-to-day uh, the mundane tasks, dealing with, with difficulties at work. We got stresses. We have financial issues that we find ourselves dealing with. We have problems with our kids or problems with our parents or problems at school. And we don't necessarily see God's presence always working in us and through us. And we struggle. And we begin to, to kind of crowd God out as we're consumed with our problems and our thoughts and all the difficulties we go through. And eventually we, we start listening to the devil as the devil starts whispering to us and, and tries, the devil starts trying to pull us away and, and tries to get us to forget who we are in Christ and our right and our privilege as God's children and all of the, the uh, opportunities and things that being a child of God affords us. I mean, we have spiritual amnesia. And I think many of us have this. And we get up in the morning and we forget that we follow Jesus. And we live our life like the rest of the world around us. And it's easy to do because it happens slowly. It doesn't just happen in a moment. I mean, rarely does someone just, you know, follow God, I'm following Jesus and love him, and just turn away immediately. It's usually a process over time. And, and it's, it's like uh, the old man in the sea. I don't know if you remember that book by Ernest Hemingway when the, the boat's going along and he's towing this gigantic catch and the, the sharks are just nibbling at it. That's how it is. Just a nibble here, a nibble here, a nibble here, a nibble here. And, and we feel, after a while, it's like, I can't go on. I'm tired of all the, the little persistent things. You know, it's like that Chinese torture, drill, Chinese torture where they, they put you under a dripping faucet. And at first you're like, no big deal. It's just that little drip. That little drip continues to come. Then it becomes a sonic boom on your head. 
boom, it's a crash every time it's magnified. And it's, see, the devil likes to take little things and magnify them and start pulling us away. And then we forget who we are eventually in Christ. And we have to go back and to overcome the spiritual amnesia. And just like Michelle Philpotts did, had to see her life in the pictures of her life and what had happened in her life and who she really was. We too need to go back and get a picture of God and to recover who we are in him. And that's what this passage does. It helps us to overcome our spiritual amnesia by showing us who our identity in Christ really is. Now, before we go any further in the message, let's ask God's Spirit to speak to us as we study His Word together. Lord, I pray that You do touch us. I pray You send Your Spirit now to convict our hearts, convict our minds, show us the reality of who we are and what changes we need to make in order to be right with You. And Lord, for those that are really struggling and going through that spiritual amnesia right now, I I pray that You show them that You are the God of hope, the God of love, the God who is there in the midst of their struggle. Speak to us today for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump in verse, verse 1, uh, or actually, excuse me, verse 21 of this passage. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. Now let's, let's begin by looking at the word alienated. It means literally estranged, removed from intimacy, and be a non-participant. We were alienated from God separated from him. There was this awkwardness between us. Now, have you ever had a falling out with someone or someone that you just, you had some altercation and then you didn't want to see them or talk to them and yet you found yourself in the grocery store and there they were? What did you do? Did you ignore them? Did you pretend not to see them? What have you done? Was it an awkward interchange when you finally did and you, you realized you had to talk? It was just so obvious you didn't know what to do? So you had to speak to them. Was it very awkward? There's this lack of intimacy that's there. There's this wall between you. And though you're, you're physically looking at one another and you might force the conversation, there's this, there's this awkwardness to the situation because you're, you're alienated from one another. We've all had encounters like that, whether it's at the restaurant, at a grocery store, somebody you don't want to see or doesn't want to see you. For us, we were alienated from God, and that's a problem. I mean, our disobedience has removed us, and, and we not exact, we're not exactly sure why. You know, I'm reminded of when I was a youth pastor. When I was a youth pastor, we took trips, um, did youth conferences in different places each year. And one year, we went to the RCA Dome in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we took several kids with us, and uh, we stayed at a hotel. We had many different adult uh, leaders, and each leader had five kids assigned to them. And we had this system to make sure that everybody stayed together. Uh, We would meet together at this one designated location every time after something was over, make sure that we'd do a count-off, make sure we were all there, and we'd get in the vans and we'd go wherever we need to go, back to our hotel or to a restaurant, whatever it needed to to happen. And uh, each... Uh, before each uh, time that we'd go in, I would give them this little speech. I would say, here are the rules. Stay with your leader. Don't separate from your leader or separate from the group. Uh, Number two, if you do find yourself, get separated from your leader, separated from the group, go to the designated area right here, and we will come and we will find you. Uh, It might be a little bit, but stay there. That's rule number two. Rule number three, if for whatever reason you forget that, then look at your wrist. And everybody had a wristband that indicated that they were part of this conference. And on that wristband was my cell phone number. So they all had a way of contacting 
May or getting back. We had all these rules built in place. So it was uh, uh, day, day one, the end of the day, the first day of the conference. It was the end of the night, and we get out of the, make our way. I mean, there's so many thousands of people getting out of the stadium. You know what it's like. And we make our way to the designated area. And I said, okay, everybody here. Yeah, count off. One, two, three, four. Well, we get to 16, and 16's gone. So I'm like, 16, where are we at? So I look up, and I said, uh, that's, somebody said, this is Dane. This is Dane. Dane is not here. Well, I look at his leader, and I said, Aaron, where's, uh, where's Dane at? He goes, I don't know. He was right by me when we were walking out. I don't know where he's at. Well, let's wait a few more minutes. So we wait five minutes, ten minutes. Thousands of people are streaming out of this building, and no Dane. Okay, now it's 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I go, Aaron, you need to go look for Dane. Go back in the building. So he's like trying to go against this big, huge crowd, and it takes like 45 minutes to get out of this building. It's so huge. And so uh, he comes back in about 10 minutes, no Dane. And we're still waiting. And all the kids are like, what do we do? And I said, okay, some of these leaders, I want you to take them to the vans. I, have, I picked two or three other leaders. I said, spread out. Let's see if we can go find him. And they all come back in 15 minutes. Now we're about 45, 50 minutes, no Dane. Now the cl- crowds are starting to trickle down. What was once a stream, now it's a trickle, and I'm getting nervous. Where is this kid? Uh, what happened to him? Did somebody take him? Your mind just wanders, you know. Where, where, all these bad scenarios start coming into your mind. What do I do? What's going on? How, how, do, I, how do I deal with this? And uh, it's, it's an hour now, and I'm really freaking out. So I said, okay, I'm going to go look for him too. So I, I start walking around this big giant RCA dome, and I'm looking around, and I make my way all the way to the rear, and I see this sliver glass, and I see, I look through the window, and I see Dane surrounded by police officers. And I, and I see him talking, and they're talking, and one of the police officers on the cell phone, and I walk up to the, the, the door, which is locked, and I pound on the door, and then Dane looks over, and he goes, hey! And he points real big. And now, my grief and fear has now transferred to, transformed to anger. <laughs> I'm, now that I know he's safe, I'm going to kill him. Okay? So I see this, I see the kid there, and, and the police officer comes over, and it's because it's like all tight, the air is like flowing and pushes me through the door, and I get ready to lash into Dane. And when the police officer hands me a phone, a cell phone, and it's Dane's mom. And Dane's like, why is my son with the police officer? And I'm, I, I'm trying to choose my words real wisely at that moment in time. And I'm talking to her and to Dane at the same time. And I said, first of all, he separated from his leader, which he wasn't supposed to do. Secondly, he, he, he uh, didn't go to the designated area that he told him about. You can see Dane going, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, and thirdly, he didn't look at his wrist where my cell phone number is. And he goes, oh, right? And uh, I grabbed Dane, and I'm, I, I give him a little bit of a tongue lashing on the way out. And it was his first time really being away from his house, going out in an event like this. And, and from that moment in time, every time we went to any place, we had called the Dane rule. Pay attention, and don't get separated from me. And I guarantee you, on that van on the way back, there was a separation between me and Dane. Because he had disobeyed. He wasn't listening. And you know, that's what happens to us. God gives us his word, he gives us his commands, and then we are alienated from him. And we're, we're caught because we didn't pay attention, we kind of chose our own way, and that's what he did. Dane wanted to go, to go look at uh, some of the stuff they were selling and didn't tell anybody, just separated from his leader and went to it. And it caused him to be separated from the rest of us. 
and alienated. And that's what God's saying, is our disobedience has alienated us from God. And, and that's a problem. I mean, have you ever had someone that you have been separated from and, and it's, it's this awkwardness and you long for that intimacy with them? I mean, and you know that there's something there and you want to fix it so bad? See, that's what's going on with, with us and God. There's this problem that we have. We have to remember that there has been a problem that our sins separated us from God. We were completely alienated from God. That's what the text is saying here, that we were alienated and Hostile in mind. Now let's look at the word hostile for a moment. The word hostile means an enemy. Someone openly hostile who is at enmity. Animated by deep-seated hatred. And it implies irreconcilable hostility proceeding out of a personal hatred bent on inflicting harm. That says we are hostile in mind, in our thoughts, and our attitudes. Now, when it's coupled with this word mind, it means hostile in our thoughts and reasoning. The word literally means thoroughly from side to side. That's what it th- means. The idea is that all of our thoughts, all of our fleshly thoughts, are at war with God. And it affects our attitude. Now, our attitude, according to the dictionary, uh, is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something Typically, one that is reflected in a person's behavior. So what he's saying there is we are hostile. We are at at war in our natural flesh, in our thoughts, and in our attitudes. We hate God. Straight up. That's how we feel. Because God is telling us what we need to do. And we don't like that. We're at war in in our flesh with God. Hostile. I mean, we are. It's not just, I don't like you, God. I hate you. In our thoughts. Now, if we say, oh, I love God in our flesh, the reality is, is we really don't love God. We love our image of God. See, when God doesn't coincide or fit with our thoughts, the way that we want God to behave, we have to make God different. See, when God says that this is a sinful thing, either we agree with God or we say we have to create a world in which what we really love is okay. See what I'm saying? What it is is saying that we have to make it so that God agrees with us. That's what we do. That's why people come up with, when they say, I prefer to think of God this way, it's they're creating their own image of God. They're creating a, a separate God, not the one true biblical God. They're creating a God with his okay with their sin. And here, he's, in, in this text, is saying, no, the fleshly man, I mean, we were once hostile in our mind. In our, we were hostile in our attitudes with God. So not only were we completely alienated, we were hostile, hostile in our attitudes, but we, we continue going forward. Look at verse 21. We were doing evil deeds. That's the last part of verse 21, 21, which shows that we were sinful in our actions. Not only do we hate God in our thoughts, we hated him with our lives. We loved our sins. Being God's enemies, we must understand that we deserved God's judgment. Our concept of judgment and justifiable wrath is so skewed anymore. We've let the media and pop psychology influence us more than we do the Word of God. See, it's God's words that shows us that we loved our sin truly. I mean, admit it. You love your sin. If you didn't love it, why would you do it? I mean, yes, we fight against it, but that's the Spirit of God working within us to show us that 
there's good that we want to do and that what we don't do, and that's what we, we, we want to do that we don't do, and the, and the, goods that we sh- the thing, bad things we shouldn't do, that's what we find ourselves doing. But I'm talking about just in our flesh. Without Christ, we love our sin. We love doing it. That's why we keep doing it. But here he's saying that we're doing our evil deeds. We were spiritual terrorists. We hated God and everything he stood for. We loved our sin. And being God's enemies, we must understand that we deserved his judgment. We deserved his wrath. But here's where hope comes in. Turn with me to Romans 5.10. It's page 942 if you have a pew Bible. Romans 5.10. We only have a few passages we'll be looking at today. Some in Romans and... uh, one in 2 Corinthians and a couple in Hebrews. But in Romans 5.10, we read this. Because if you think about it, we're pretty hopeless. We're under God's wrath. But here's where hope enters in gloriously. For if, we will, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more, Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? While we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself. He loved us, even though we were his enemies. Now, go back to our passage and look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him. Now, here we're talking about Jesus. He is the reason for everything. He gave his life for us. He died for us. The problem that we have is monumental, but God didn't leave us there. He saw us in our rebellion and saw us in all of our anger, all of our hatred, all of our hostility, and all of our bitterness and chose to die for us anyway. He died for me. He died for you. He saw all of what we have done, what I have done, what you have done, and he still chose to die. That's marvelous. That's why the cross is so important, by the way. That's why I love that Isaac Watts hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, where he says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands of my soul, my life, my all. See, the only solution to our problem is the cross. It's a wondrous cross. If we are to overcome our spiritual amnesia, we have to go back there. Why? Because as another Isaac Watts hymn reminds us so beautifully that it was at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. Or as the hymn Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross phrases it, In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my wrath. 
tortured soul shall find rest beyond the river. It's the cross. So we have to go back to the cross. That's what this passage is saying. We have to go back. Because it's the cross that shows us the depth of God's love for us. If we are to overcome our spiritual amnesia, then we must go back and savor his passion, the passion of Christ. Passion is a way of discussing how he died, the suffering he went to. And it's it's an old story. It's one that no matter how much new technology that we get, no matter how many new methods we come up with, it's the same old gospel story. I like that it's hymn Sunday in my brain. Uh, but it reminds me of another hymn. As I, I kept writing the sermon, another hymn kept coming up. I heard an old, old story of how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Sing the chorus if you know it. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Great song, huh? It's the cross. It's the cross. It's the Savior who came to die. See, the reason that so many hymn writers have focused on that is because they understood the ramifications of what it meant. It was monumental. See, it was on the cross that Jesus became our substitute. He became our substitute on the cross. I mean, did you know that he was your substitute? That he died for your sins? I like how John uh, blogger John Barnett captures this thought. He says, On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. Did you get that? God treated him as if he committed personally Every sin ever committed by every person who had ever believed, though the fact is he committed none of them. That is the great doctrine of substitution. And that's the first side of the theological concept called imputation. God imputed our sins to him. He was guilty of none of them. God treated him as if he committed all of them. And he just unloaded his fury for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe in him in the history of the world. He unloaded all his fury against all their sins on Christ. To borrow the language of Leviticus 16, Jesus became the scapegoat. 
The scapegoat was guilty of nothing, but the high priest, as it were, laid all the sins of the people on the scapegoat and sent him away. Jesus was without sin, but sin was credited credited to his account as if he had personally committed it, and then God punished him, though the fact is he never committed any of it. That's imputation. So think about all the sins that you've done, one by one. Okay? We can't can't think of them all. There's so many of them. But yet, every sin that you did, he substituted himself for it. He took the punishment for you and for me. See, it's the Savior who came to die. And not only was he our substitute, but he became our sin. He became sin itself. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's on page 966. This is a good verse to memorize if you haven't. I would heavily encourage you to do so. But 2 Corinthians 5.21, the scripture says, For our sake he made him, God the Father, made him, the Son of God, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus became sin, and by God showing his wrath on him, he is showing how he feels about sin. It's not just a habit we have. It's not just a hookup. It's not just a, 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 a personality trait that's, that's a problem. It's sin. It's rebellion toward God. See, when Jesus became sin, God put his wrath upon him, and he is showing how he feels about your sin in mind. This should remove any idea that it's okay to sin, to justify it. When, he, when we see Christ on the cross, we see all of that punishment that he went through. That shows his judgment. It's not just a cultural issue. It's not something that people can vote on. It's not something that is, is now okay. No, God is showing personally, visibly, and for all eternity how he feels about your sin and mine. And that it deserves God's wrath. And the Son of God took that upon himself. So there's no room for discussion. What about now? What about this? What about that? No, he's showing. It, it is judged. We need not to continue in it. It's not just a habit, not a hookup, or nor is it just a struggle. It's enmity toward God. We don't use that word very often. What is enmity? Enmity is the state or being actively opposed or hostile to God. Sin is a rejection of God. Sin is a rejection of God. It's saying, I don't believe you in this. I don't trust you in this. I'm going to do what I want. You say it's this. I say it's this. I'm going to do what I want, no matter what. That's what sin is. See, Jesus came to put away sin by sacrificing himself. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Page 1005, and then we'll turn over to 1006 right after we get done with Hebrews 7. But in Hebrews 7, verse 27, we read this. He has no need, like those high priests. Okay, high priest, this is direct imagery going back to the Old Testament where there was a high priest who is the representative, the uh, true and um, only representative of the people before God, uh, the great high priest. So he would represent the people um, before God. One priest would be a high priest, uh, usually for his lifetime. 
But here, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is our high priest. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. The, sac- the high priest had to offer a sacrifice every day. They're saying, no, our high priest doesn't have to do that. First for his own sins and then for the sin- those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, to flip the page and go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. That's on page 1006, and it says this, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, not only did Jesus become our substitute, not only did he become sin, but he willingly sacrificed himself for us. He was a willing sacrifice for us. Now, one of the greatest books to ever seize this truth is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, in it, we have Edmund Pevensey betraying his family for some Turkish delight as he joins with Jadis, the white witch. But she, he ends up escaping from because he's imprisoned. He escapes, but the law states that because he is a traitor, he rightfully belongs to her, and he must die for what he had done. Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure in the story, negotiates a deal with her and trades himself for Edmund, sacrificing himself in the process. He is bound and tied and then stabbed by the white witch as a sacrifice on the stone table to the delight of all of Jadis' minions. Everyone leaves quickly to go to war, and Aslan's body is left with Susan and Lucy Pevensey. They lament him, stroke his fur, and express their disbelief over his death. As they start to leave, the ground shakes and a large crack of stone is heard in the background. They turn around to see that the stone table was broken and Aslan had disappeared. And then to their astonishment, Aslan appears. Susan flabbergasted says, but we, we saw the witch, we saw the knife. To which Aslan responds, if the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. It's a great line. Death itself would turn backwards. See, this is a picture of what Christ has done for us. He turned death backwards. It's amazing what Christ did for us. Why did he do it? Look at verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It was to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, his death put us in a position before God we could not have otherwise had ourselves. And we have to marvel at this position. I mean, think about it. God saved you. He not just saved you, he gave you the right to be one of his children. Imagine if the Queen of England were to call you up and say, by the way, I'm adopting you into my family and giving you the rights and privileges therein. What would you do? What would you do? I mean, imagine that. You are now in a position. You are a king and a queen to God. It's interesting. I, in the, in the, the same story, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, when Edmund is with Jadis, there is uh, Mr. Fox. He's, uh, he's pro-Aslan, if it were, and Jadis has set herself up as, as this usurper queen and claims herself as queen of Narnia even though she's really not. And uh, her, 
her servants, these wolves, go and capture Mr. Fox. Mr. Fox comes, and, and she says, you've helped me in the past, now help me now. And, he, and Edmund is standing right by her, and he says, excuse me, your majesty. And she says, flattery will do you no good now. And he goes, I wasn't speaking to you. Meaning that he's, he's a king. He's destined to be a king. Even though he's a, he might be a traitor now, God's working something within him. See, we are kings and queens in the sight of God. When he saves us, he puts us in a privileged position. And we fail to realize that privileged position we have as God's children. I mean, we can't, this is not something to, that we could ever be bored of. This is not something that is trivial by world standards. This is something much more monumental than anything else that the world could ever offer. And we have to marvel at that, that God would take us in our rebellion as a traitor and help us to be kings and queens with the rights and privileges to be one of his children. It's amazing to think about that God would do that. See, the only reason that we are in this position is because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we are now reconciled with God. That's what this text is talking about. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He brought us to God. Jesus has now brought us back into right relationship with God. He is the one who paid the price to bring us back to God. He made reconciliation possible. And he is also, if you look at verse 22, has reckoned you as holy. You are now set apart by God. You are his prized possession. He has set you apart and presented you as holy before God the Father. How are you living? Are you living as a holy child of God? Does your life look like one who is God's prized possession? He has set you apart for himself to be his ambassador. Are you communicating his agenda and not yours? And not only has he, he reckoned you as holy, look at you, look at, verse, uh, look, look at the next part of it. He has presented you as blameless, blameless, which literally means unblemished, without spot or blight, figuratively, morally, spiritually blameless, unblemished from the marring effects of sin. Now, sometimes we think we are, we're, we're good-looking people. Do you not? Do you think that way? You know, <laughs> no. But, you know, it's interesting. We, we can think we're pretty good and, until, especially if you're in a dark room. You ever been in a dimly lit room and look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I look pretty good. You know, I was walking with my wife. We were at Target the other day and we went down the makeup section. And that has the most glaring light. It's like the sun's rays penetrating your face. And I'm like, why does such a bright light? And I realized they want to show every blemish possible. Isn't that right? Think about it. They want you to see everything about yourself. So you go, oh, I need more makeup. I need cover-up, I need this, I need that. There's like a million things. I mean, Van Gogh and Da Vinci didn't have that much paint. And they, they need all this stuff to cover up a lot of the blemishes that you have. And wrinkle, anti-aging cream, you're right. Um, just, uh, now, I'm not saying that about my wife now, okay? She doesn't need it. She doesn't age. i to clean it up now. Okay. But it's all these things that that light brings it out. Now, when we go into the presence of God, his light is infinitely more brighter than that. And it brings out our blemishes. And he's saying here, you are now, you have no blemishes. Perfect spiritual skin. God has presented you to be Perfect in his sight, blameless, without spot or wrinkle or crease or anything else. You are perfect in the sight of God. He, it's right here. You are blameless because of Jesus. So when God looks at you, he sees complete beauty. 
beauty. He has rendered us clean in God's sight. Did you know that? He's rendered us clean. That's what it means. Unblemished from the marring effects of sin. It means that we've been rendered clean in God's sight. You know, it's interesting. If we look at in the book of, uh, if I remember correctly, it's in Zechariah, or it could be Zephaniah. And in, in the book, it talks about the devil accusing Joshua the high priest before God. And, it's the, and, and Satan is known, by the way, as the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser. And so he's, it's like being in a court of law. Here's Satan. He's the prosecuting attorney. And there's Jesus as the defense attorney. And God the Father is judge. And, and you know how they have those long, drawn-out court cases? You know, we see them in the media all the time. They last weeks or months. They have evidence. They have all the, the, the judges and make it a big fanfare. Now, this is, Satan is going through, he's got, I mean, stacks on your life. And he is going through every sin before God the Father. And at the end of it, the God the Father picks up the, the, the gavel and, and he'll say, guilty or innocent? Now, you know in your heart that you're guilty. And if you don't have Jesus as your attorney, you have to represent yourself. Think about that. Okay, so it's just Satan. He's before God the Father. You have no, you have no uh, prosecuting attorney to defend you. And so he goes, how do you plead? I got nothing to plead. I'm guilty. And he takes the, gal- the gavel and says, guilty. And you're guilty in the sight of God. And you're going to be, decl- you'll be judged according to that. And you will go off to hell. You'll receive your, your penalty. But if you have Christ, Satan gives that list. He accuses everything. And then Jesus says, um, your honor, I plead the blood. I plead the blood. And God the Father goes, innocent, because you pled the blood of my son. Jesus gave himself for you, and now you are, you are blameless. You, are, you have passed through that judgment. And Satan can't say anything else. As soon as God the Father says it, it's, it's done. It's like the Supreme Court in the United States. We have a court of appeals, and then it makes its way to the Supreme Court. And whatever the Supreme Court says happens. Now, they're limited, though, geographically. They're only in the United States. Now, God's courtroom is much bigger, infinitely bigger, with much more power. And there is no court of, there are, there, there's no court of appeals. If God says that you are clean, you are clean. And Satan's going to try to bring your past back to you. He's going to say that you're this and this, and that you, you can't change, and that God is not going to work through you, and, and that your job is hopeless, and, and he's not going to heal of this instance or heal of this, uh, this illness, and he's not going to be with you, and you're going to be isolated, and he's not going to meet your need. And you can go back to Jesus who says, I will be with you always to the end of the age, that I am with you, that you can plead me. I'm here. I'm your advocate. That's what he's saying here. He has presented us to be clean in the sight of God and that we are also above reproach. That's that legal terminology. He's not, gonna, uh, he's not holding or going to call you to account for that anymore of your sin. It's past. It's done. Now, he's going to call you to an account if you have Christ of what you've done with what he's given you, but you don't have to be worried about that dreaded court day. You don't have to worry about it any longer because now you're regarded as irreproachable. No one can accuse you. You are irreproachable. Who's gonna, if God says that you're all good with him, who's going to say anything else? I mean, seriously. People can say whatever they want to say, but if God is for you, who can be against you? And if God is for us, who can be against us? He is the God of hope. Now, you're irreproachable. You don't have to worry about the devil bringing back your past to you anymore because you're a new creature in Christ. 
Your past has been forgiven. You have a clean slate, a second chance. And he can't hold it to you any longer. you got spiritual Teflon. Nothing can, spill, nothing can stick to you. Regarded as irreproachable. Now, let's continue back. Let's look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I want you to pay attention to this little word, if. See that little word, if? It's a conditional word. And it's if indeed you continue in the faith. See, this is referring to our perspective. Now, we talk about sometimes God's perspective and our perspective. If you are saved, you've been chosen since the foundation of the world. That's God's perspective. Okay? That's working in us in ways that we don't necessarily understand. From our perspective, we see repentant belief. God the Father drawing us. We have to respond in obedience. And he's saying here, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. What he's saying there is all of this is conditional. You're being blameless. All of this is is, as though God has purchased it for us and enabled us to have it. It is seen in the reality of our lifelong pursuit of him. See, if people say, I'm blameless, and yet they're continuing to enjoy and live in the midst of their sin... Well, then they really don't really have Christ. See, there's a separation here. He's saying that I want you to live in a lifelong pursuit. If you're to overcome your spiritual amnesia, then you need to continue on in the faith. You need to fight day by day. When your feet hit the floor, you need that, to have that picture reminding you that you are God's child, that you are blameless before him. It's a day-by-day thing. Take up your cross daily. It is not just a one-time thing. It's dying daily, living in a lifelong pursuit. See, the word for continue means persist, remain in. It's in the active voice. We're to continue to persist in the faith. This is where I get so frustrated with those who said, well, that person made a decision. They prayed the prayer. They prayed with them right there on the street. And they received Jesus, and they go and live like a pagan. Well, I'm like, well, they really don't understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not praying this magical prayer, which is some incantation. A magical formula here. It's just understand. Now, I'm not saying we don't devalue one's commitment to Christ. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is that commitment to Christ is seen in the reality of one's walk with Christ. That's what I'm saying. We are to live in this lifelong pursuit to continue in. We're also to be, notice that word, stable. Stable it means being established, laying a foundation. As believers, we're to have a proper foundation. See, if we're to to continue on in this lifelong pursuit, it means having a proper foundation of faith. We need to be stable. I met some Christians in my time who are up and down. Some, they're so up that you look at them and you're like, wow. I I was across from a young man a while ago, and he just started crying and telling me how much he loved Jesus. And just a couple months later, he said that he's an unbeliever and an atheist. That's not stable. That's not having the right foundation. His was based on emotion. Not on the truth of who God is. We have to have the proper foundation of faith. We're also to remain steadfast, which means fixed and firm. When it's used figuratively, it means focused and purpose. We have to have a focus to live. God gives us purpose. He gives us life. He redefines our life. We cannot live for ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Ask myself a question. Are we focused? 
What are we focused on? What are you focused on? What's the passion of your life? What's the heartbeat of your life? What is your goal? Is it to get more stuff so people marvel at you and all the things that you have? Is it to get more awards? Is it to notice your beauty? Is it to say how smart you are? Is it to, to compliment your house, or your car, or your, your job, or your planning, or your ability, or your strength, or your skill? What is it? What is your goal? What is your purpose in life? Here it's saying that we are to focus to live. And that means focusing on Christ. Finding our delight and our joy in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Now lastly, we're to make sure that we are, look at the last verse, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What that means there is not shifting from the hope. It's literally, it means being moved away. Being moved away. I remember when I uh, lived in New England, I lived really close to the beach. And you could see uh, something that would be really light on the beach, uh, like, a, like a child's toy or tennis ball. They would always have dogs out there, and people would be throwing their dogs. And, and they'd sometimes leave these tennis balls behind. And then the tide would come in. And what would happen? What, what did I say? Did I say something? <laughs> Throwing the dog. <laughs> I'm up here every week. I'm bound to say something stupid. They would throw the tennis ball, and the dog would go get the tennis ball. And sometimes they would leave the tennis ball behind. But with the tide in New England, especially where we were at, is huge when it comes in. And what would happen if that tennis ball was just sitting on the sand? You would take it out. It would be moved away from its foundation. Now, if you have a proper foundation that's dug down deep, then no matter how much that tide comes in, it's not going to move it. So here he's saying that you have to have a, uh, you can't be moved away. You can't be shifted. And that means having that proper foundation. That means being dug down deep, holding on, a fierce resolve to follow him. Returning back to your first love. It's not just a Sunday thing. Don't move away from your devotion to Christ. That's what this devil is trying to do to get you to move away. And he will do it, and he will attack you. I mean, he knows the playbook on your life. He knows all the sins and struggles that you have. He knows how to get you to doubt. He knows how to get you to to wander away. And And he might use, for some people, I mean, he might try to use lust and adultery, but why would he use lust and adultery if he can just use internet pornography? Why, why would he want to get you to, to uh, hurt someone physically when he can just get you as easily through gossip? He gets you in a lot of different ways. He will chip away at your guard. He has a lot of arrows in his quiver and knows your weak spot. He won't try and get you to have an affair if he can keep you engaged secretly in porn. He won't try to get you to commit murder if gossip will suffice. Be careful of dividing sin into the major and minor leagues. Sin was judged in its entirety on the cross, not just the major ones, but the minors as well. So we have to make sure that we are on guard and that we can't, we have to overcome this spiritual amnesia because there's too much at stake. We're in a war. We can't, we can't just go around going, oh, there's a war going on. That's all right. That's nice. People are dying because of it. I don't think we realize that. It may not seem like all-out hostility and open warfare going on, but it's, there's a lot of spies. And the devil's trying to get in in secret ways in our lives. So here we are. Do you see now who God made you to be? You're his prized possession. 
He loves you so much that he died for you. Don't give in to the schemes of the devil. Don't listen to his lies. Live the life God has purchased and planned for you. The one that he died to give you. One filled with joy, hope, peace, and contentment. But we have to remind ourselves of that day by day.